Something different this way comes something Something different something different Something different this way comes something Something different something different Welcome to something different this way comes This is the pen is mightier edition I'm Heather McLeod and I'm so glad you're listening On last week's edition, Brendan Grant of Sleepy G Farm called our choices volts. He said, deciding to buy locally and sustainably grown food, well, that's a vote for the world you want to live in. He and I, we also talked about the the power of policy to create opportunities and, and support or discourage things. So today's edition is expanding on that. It's kind of about voting because we are in the middle of a provincial election. Something different, something different. Provincial politicians decide what's supported or discouraged on several fronts. Provincial energy and transport systems, mining, waste and water management standards and support, environmental protection, education, Health care? Key stuff for climate change, for, for adapting to the chaos that's now part of our climate, mitigating and preparing for the change we want to see. Key stuff for lessons learned through this pandemic. The changes we make or fail to make in this next four-year term are so important. So I'm, I'm going to take a little change, change it up a little bit. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two things in this episode. First, I'm going to introduce the things that have got me thinking about provincial matters and, and my hopes for, for our future here in Thunder Bay with the urgency of the climate crisis ever at my back. I will include details and everything I reference in the website, which I hope you visit. I love it when people come and see us at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. And then... I'm going to share with you three questions I asked all ten candidates in the two Thunder Bay ridings, and the answers given by the three candidates who got back to me. Answers I recorded without interruption, and then responded to with my thoughts, and later detailed in a, in a long email. Because no matter who is elected, I, I want to help inform their job. Oh yeah, <laughs> now I am outed. I am a squeaky wheel. I squeak with my pen or rather my computer. Now that I've lost the muzzle of being a journalist, unable to voice an opinion, only ask questions, I am now a serial emailer to elected politicians. It doesn't matter what party they're with. They represent me, so I want to help them do their job well. I want to fuel their decisions with firsthand experiences and opinions of of me as somebody they represent. You would be surprised how few of us they hear from, actually. Even in the door-to-door and handshaking moments of elections, few of those they speak with make an unexpected or nuanced point. It is hard to think of something substantial on the spot. And of course, once elected, they recognize the charmers paid to inform and influence them as bias by design. But, But I think every elected politician should, and generally does, appreciate a good email. Or a good conversation, if given the chance. The pen really is mightier than the sword. You might not, you know, win somebody over in that conversation itself, but you could plant some seeds that make them think and, uh, and some stories that, that inform a conversation we'll have later on. 
it can resonate. It can influence well past the, the clash and, and symmetry of, of debate as spectacle. I have even gifted my elected uh, representative with a gift of books that I think they should read. <laughs> I recently gave Patty Hadju a copy of Humankind by Rutger Bregman and a copy of A Good War by Seth Klein. And, and I got a very nice thank you note back in reply. So, when I experience firsthand a pressure point that I think should be addressed, when I stumble over a barrier that clearly is not functioning as intended, or is overdue for an update, I vote with my pen, to paraphrase Brendan, or so to speak. I think about and then I articulate the change I want to see in the world, and, and when we're in an election, I think about what I want this government to tackle in their next term. start with mining. Northwestern Ontario is full of experts in mining. First-hand experience, years of it. Whatever the job in mining, a Thunder Bayer has done it and done it well. The mines we call the Ring of Fire, northeast of the city, not yet constructed, much talked about for years, a hot topic in fact, are now being heralded as essential to the shift to electrification, to electric cars that Ontario could soon be building, specifically using lots of rare metals that could be mined in the Ring of Fire, a treasure trove of rare metals. It sounds good. Economic opportunity and climate action. But, you can hear my butt, right? <laughs> the plans being received among climate change scientists and, and the First Nation people who have stewarded that land we're now calling a Ring of Fire, with more alarm than welcome. It's not quite a consensus. Some climate activists are coming forward to say they think the need for rare metals outweighs the risk, but most agree the risk is considerable. And the risk is that the carbon cost of those mines, the carbon cost of mining, far outweighs any benefits from those rare metals in those electric cars. And plus, now here's the other clincher. There are other cheaper, quicker, Ontario-based ways to get those rare metals mining options. So here's a bit of background. The Ring of Fire is an, an ancient, undisturbed peatland. And it turns out those are the most effective carbon capture we have on the planet. Better than forests, even rainforests. And unlike forests, peat bogs don't burn. Thousands of years of carbon is sequestered in those peatlands. Plus, they are teeming with life, incredibly rich environments, key to many migrations and species, and they're filters. They clean the air and the water. But the huge area of peat bogs in northern Ontario, they're also all interrelated. Disturb one small part of it, you disturb it all. And by disturb, I mean release thousands of years worth of carbon in short order. Now, we do need to shift from fossil fuel burning to electric everything quickly. And we do need more rare metals to do this. In fact, I only recently learned why. On Quirks and Quarks, of course, the CBC Science Program, totally love it. Modern computers use many different kinds of metal because each conducts electricity a little differently. And so having a little bit of a lot of things lets you pack a lot of information, highways, into a little tiny space. 
without them hopping lanes, to push the metaphor, or getting into data highway accidents. So we need those rare metals. And they are hard to extract through traditional mining because they don't come in thick veins. And then, in that same episode of Quirks and Quarks, I heard about an alternative that made me think of Northwestern Ontario and Thunder Bay and all the, the smart, skilled, expert miners and, and people related to the mining industry that we have around here. The guy's name is James Tour. Um, he works at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Scientist, totally. He has a whole team. He's figured out with his team how to cheaply extract rare earth elements from mining tailings. He called it urban mining. He, he noted, actually, that rare metals are, are very common in the tailings from mining. And his team has now developed a method to extract it from, well, the first two they started with were fly ash from coal burning and also the residue from aluminum smelting. But they say the technique can be extended to all kinds of tailings, all kinds of metals, remaining cheap, remaining available. And on top of that, you know, we're cleaning up tailings. <laughs> we're, we're harvesting what we need to go more electric without creating more mines. We're, we're cleaning up the leavings of the mines we've already built. So no, no, no brainer, right? We're, we're not disturbing ancient peatlands. We're not risking releasing all this carbon into an already carbon overlaid atmosphere. I mean, it's, it's so exciting. And, and it's an example of just a little more research, thought, voices at the table, you know, to weigh the alternatives to look beyond the lobbyists' pet proposals or the simple soundbite you've said before. And while they're at it, I think they should put back in place the recently scrapped environmental protection measures and the funding to our water management and conservation organizations that have been recently slashed. I mean, there's lots of things worth restoring, as well as our natural environment. I recently listened to a podcast where they visited the town of Kamikatsu in Japan. A small town, um, like about 1,500 people, somewhat remote, that has gone hands-on when it comes to waste management and recycling. And they started this years ago. They built a center for cleaning and sorting everything they throw out. And recycling, I'm talking like they sell 80% of the waste they produce, which means not just cleaning, but also storing them. And they're realized over time that they're generating less and less waste as people value things because they can be reused. They don't even need to be recycled because they don't break down. They last. Everyone does the work. Everyone in town, even though half the town is over the age of 65. They do have one paid position that coordinates everybody's efforts. It's a valued work. But most people do it as volunteers, and they don't mind. They do it with pleasure. I mean, what really struck me was the, was the pride and, the, and the, the joy and the sense of accomplishment in the voices of the people I heard in this little podcast. 
And the reason they got around to this declaration wasn't because there were some leaders and, you know, going green. They kind of got cornered into it. They had spent years trying to raise enough money to build an incinerator. They'd been doing open pit burning of their waste for ages. Uh, and they thought they'd upgrade to an incinerator. It took it a long time to get the financing. It's not a big community. And just as they got ready to put it online, Japan changed the rules and what they were ready to finance was no longer okay. They didn't want to start from scratch. So somebody came up with a radical idea of let's just do it by hand, see how it goes. And they love it. In fact, they credit this for making them a stronger, happier, more connected community, which is kind of a digression, but kind of not. The other easy, cheap source of necessary rare metals is electronics recycling, which we do some of in Thunder Bay, which is great. And we're doing more recycling here. I mean, I don't hear enough people talking about this, but it's very exciting how much more recycling, how much more you can recycle here, how we've, we've solved our conundrum of being far from markets and, and not wanting to spend all our money on cleaning and sorting stuff. There are people here in Thunder Bay who know how to do more and how to do better. They could use provincial policies and funding to help make that happen, it's worth talking about at this time of election and, and kind of giving our marching orders to our next provincial leaders. Something different this way comes, yes. Something different this way comes. Something different this way comes, yes. Something different this way comes. My head has been ringing this week with the words of Bren Smith, whom I, I just discovered. I heard him interviewed last weekend on a podcast, and, and I kept having to pause the podcast to grab a pen and write down what he was saying. And, and when you go look up today's blog on, on www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca, um, it's a lot of his words that I transcribed because literally I had to write him down. He's, he, he grew up in a, in a small fishing outport in Newfoundland in the 1970s, left school at 14 to fish. And so he, front hand, encountered, experienced the crash of the cod fisheries. And he kept on fishing, loving the work, appreciating so much of what it means to be a fisherman, but gradually growing to hate how it impacted the, the landscape that he loved, the ocean. So he sought something different, a way to steward the ocean instead of harvesting it uh, rapaciously, how to harvest and yet replenish. And he's now steward of an organization called Green Wave, and he's also a farmer of the ocean. He farms kelp and, and harvests sea fish that live in the kelp forest that he grows. And, and in his way of, of providing food and fertilizer, he's also capturing carbon so he can sell carbon credits and help people shift to uh, sustainable economies all very cool, right? Very cool. But what I what I loved was also how much, how deeply he thought about this and how succinctly he could put it. You know, he's not airy-fairy. He's not an academic. He's just a thoughtful, smart guy who's got away with words. Um, I had to write that one down. How to become stewards of our planet. That's what I'm seeking, opportunities to become stewards of our planet. Another thing Bren Smith said that I had to write down is, we have a deficit of autonomy in our economy. And here's how he described what he meant. He said, you know, there are great songs like sea shanties about jobs. 
that might be dangerous or financially insecure jobs like being a fisherman. And it's not because of their insecurity, though, that they make for great songs. It's because of their autonomy. If you, if you close a fishery and you, and you take that fisherman and you give him a better-paying job with benefits, a pension, security, no safety concerns, odds are good. He'll take that extra pay and drink himself away because he's lost so much more than you just gave him. He's lost his autonomy. A well-paying job, benefits and a pension, it's not a bad thing. But is it a job that gives you a voice to help shape your day and your work and, and to be heard? Does it give you problems you can tackle and take credit for solving or... <laughs> failing to solve? Uh, does it give you teammates that you're building a life with? You know, people who can celebrate the successes and understand the failures. Does it give you unforeseen challenges? You can figure out how to sort out on the spot and look back at the end of that day and have a story to tell. That's autonomy. That is a job worth having. A life worth living. And he said, you know, there's not a lot of great songs out there about lawyers. <laughs> That's right. Or middle management jobs, right? So, so, so. Bren Smith said as well, not unrelated. He started with, we have a deficit of autonomy in our economy and made me think of, of myself and my children and what I wish for us and all the ways I want us to feel like we're stewards of our own lives as well as the world that we rely on. And then he said, we need to draw carbon down by lifting people up. Draw carbon down by lifting people up. So his kelp farm is, is offering jobs with autonomy that make a difference, right? Wow. And there's so many ways we could draw down carbon and lift people up. I had to write that down, too. I is the buy that builds the boat, and I is the buy that sails her. I is the buy that catches the fish and brings it home to Liza. I is the buy that builds the boat, I is the buy that sails her. I is the buy that catches the fish and brings it home to Liza. Right? <laughs> there are no good songs about lawyers, it's true. <laughs> or cogs and corporate wheels. Which also made me think about how vulnerable so many of us are to things like incels, white supremacy groups, anti-vaccine movements, organizations that give people a place. That's what those groups are so good at. They listen for voices. They draw you in. They say, I hear what you're saying. They recognize and your autonomy to make a difference in your community. They celebrate your success. They create fearsome weapons of community. Groups that are just gelled together because they build fellowship and place and voice. Those fearsome groups are attacking everything I love. They're attacking everything that makes me feel safe. They're attacking everything that gives me hope for the future. And this all makes me wonder, what autonomy, what community, what celebration of accomplishment and capacity are we giving one another in Thunder Bay? Where are we gathering to work and sing together, to look in one another's eyes and know one another?
How can we build more and stronger community here to make this more the place we want to be, more the world we want to see, to steward this place, this land, and all those of us who live here? I love the signs that so many people now post on their property. I feel like driving around or walking around, I'm, I'm hearing this mantra of, of positive hopes and declarations. Orange shirts and signs. Every child matters. Red dresses to remember and, and celebrate all that we were given by the missing and the murdered women, the girls and the two-spirited that we lost when we lost them. Hate has no place here in those bright multicolored signs. Rainbows declaring that pride lives here. This is, this is the lyric of Thunder Bay as I walk my streets. Every child matters. Hate has no place here. Pride lives here. As we think about this election and and the province and policies and, and the people we can ask to lead us, I also think about the lessons learned in the last couple of years in this pandemic on the front lines, on the job, teachers, healthcare workers, long-term care workers, small businesses, and the students and patients and residents and clients. There were pain points that were made clear, inefficiencies and insufficiencies that that just came so clearly to light, right? The real scope of jobs beyond what we had known to value or or fund or measure. Education, healthcare, business supports and financing, you know, these are all provincial policy concerns. In this next term, I want to see this learning inform improvements. I want people's first-hand experiences and insights to gain autonomy. That's an autonomy I'd like to see more of in our economy. I want more people to be able to try things and inform things, to be heard and respected and supported. I mean, I want more of the people that we elect to run our provincial policy decision-making and tax-spending decisions to be ready to listen, to have the tools to hear, to try new ways of doing things, to invest in improvements, to be ready to not quite get it right, because perfect is never possible. But always improvements can be made. We have a deficit of autonomy in our economy. This also makes me think of muzzles, of, of all the professionals who feel they can't join in the conversation, they can't voice their own opinion, they can't share in solving problems in the public sphere. I was talking to a teacher this week about how teaching during COVID was made so much harder because they couldn't try things, because they were given no additional resources. Anything new was taken from something previously there. For example, uh, she talked about how the provincial government did a big announcement and said, we have made available all of these iPads to students across Ontario. So they're getting calls from parents going, where's my iPad? And they had to say, yeah, that was um, a reannounce. There's no new iPads. They're just pointing out that they had previously issued iPads before the pandemic, which we have been putting to use and, and have no more of. 
no extra resources, no money to get more people in, to problem solve, to learn new things, to to do anything <laughs> more when more was needed. There were things learned. Every teacher knows what we could do differently that would be more effective. And yet they feel muzzled. Whether or not they're fully muzzled, that's a different question. But many, many people feel they cannot speak out. And I wonder why. You know, what, what are we protecting? Right? When, when the doctors and the lawyers and the accountants and the financial professionals, <laughs> we, we, we can't speak out. And I wonder what we're protecting. What's the great value of all of this silence? And is it worth the cost? Because personally, I think that's really expensive. I want to hear from everybody. Always. We have a deficit of autonomy in our economy. Indeed. You know, many governments have been working on that. Municipal governments, Halifax, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Kingston, Detroit, Ithaca, all kinds of governments, provincial governments, state governments, many, many federal governments around the world. They have been figuring out how to pull people together so that you can have a climate lens on everything. We have to change so many things on so many fronts all at once. We need so much insight and perspective and action and capacity to enact change. The province here in Ontario, the government did put together panels of experts to help advise them through COVID, right? It's not like they don't know how to do it. Well, COVID was was hard. It's still being difficult and tricky, but it's a smaller problem than the climate crisis, and it's more quickly going to be resolved. The climate crisis is a doozy, and it's affecting us. You cannot tell me after the spring we've had that more extreme weather events are more common. Isn't already happening, right? And isn't expensive, and isn't manageable, right? We know what to do. We just got to get our acts and gear and do a bit more. Do more of what we know how to do. Get more people feeling like they can be part of the solution. More autonomy in our economy. Profit the children, profit the land, profit the justice you hold in your hand. Profit peace, beauty and joy, profit the children, profit the land, profit the children, profit the land. Another provincial initiative I consider to be a climate action imperative is basic income as well as pharmacare and dental care and mental health care, patching all the holes in our social safety net through which all too many fall, saving every single one of us from the cost of worrying that there but for the grace of God go I, or my child, or my niece, or my neighbor, or my dad. Helping pay for some of these things through some employers is an expensive, inefficient, system. It, it misses most of us. And we can do better. In Drawdown, the companion of the top contributors to shifting our ways from climate crisis feeding to climate crisis solving, it's clear lifting people out of social insecurity is key. Social insecurity costs us. It costs policing, emergency care, incarceration, so many soul-sucking jobs defending things that nobody wants to need. Thunder Bay just got funding for a new long-overdue jail. 
And they're hoping the new facility will help. This kept coming up and talks about it. They're hoping it will help them finally attract enough staff. These are well-paying union jobs with benefits and pensions, but nobody wants them. Nobody wants them. Because jails, emergency care, mental health crises, they are so expensive. They are expensive monetarily, but they're hard on our souls too. Because we know that every one of us matters. There's no bad guys. There's bad systems. We can do better. Penny wise, pound foolish. Whoever gets the job of sitting in provincial legislature this June, I hope they think about that. I would love to hear a conversation about that. I've been thinking a lot about William McDonough. He's been around a long time, but, but I only finally heard him on the podcast Future Cities. He's an architect. He's a designer. He's a, he's a thought leader, and, and clearly he's, he's very comfortable with his ideas and very does it with joy, and it's so pleasant to listen to him. But what he said that just came to mind now that I have to share with you, he said that um, he quoted Archimedes saying that, um, give me a long enough lever and a fulcrum and I can lift the world. And he said, let's think about our fulcrums. Right, the fulcrum that allows us to make substantive systematic shifts are our values. And our values have changed from when a lot of our systems were established. So if we get clear on what our current values are, shifting and lifting gets so much easier. Man, that stuck with me, eh? What does that say? That, that's so, that's so huge. I've been, I read the, the Home for Unwanted Girls by Joanna Goodman with my book club lately. Quebec children, born out of wedlock, or born to a, a wife who simply could not afford to feed and shelter her baby and had to give them up to the church that ran the orphanages. And those children were treated so badly. They were left in underfunded spaces. They were shamed. They were punished. They were denied basic rights. And then in Quebec, the orphanages were made into hospitals for mentally ill people in which the orphans became unpaid labor just to take advantage of mental hospitals being funded better than orphanages at the federal level. This happened in Canada within our lifetimes. I mean, there are people still walking around who survive that. The book is fiction, but those are facts. So I think about international market manipulation, where, where things are made elsewhere because wages are so much lower there, and, and so are uh, safety standards, those are lower there, and taxes on factory owners' profits are lower there, so this cost of supply chain savings means that's where things are made. That is a global system rooted in colonization and slavery. It's a global system that's only a few hundred years old among us that have been walking around figuring out how to do things for tens of thousands of years. I mean, in that system, even the owners are insecure as their place in their society is coveted and challenged. It's all about fear and division and segregation, and it's not a nourishing system. It's not a sustainable system. I mean, after all, most of us are not owners, too. i got to point this out, right? In that system that now wraps around the world that we're all trying in different ways to reorient ourselves to and disentangle ourselves from, people are servants and bondsmen. They're slaves, maybe merchants. They're capital. It's so stratified. So commodified. So insecure.
now we have won freedoms and equality. Every child matters. Hate has no place here. Pride lives here. And certainly every First Nation child who was forcibly removed from their families and culture and raised without care or decency and died at school, whose death was hidden and unacknowledged until the remains were finally sought out, those children who continue to be found, thousands of them across this land we call Canada, those children matter. Every child matters. Every face, every person, everyone in Thunder Bay matters. Everyone on this small, fragile planet matters. And has more to give than it would ever take to give us all the basic security and respect we all deserve. If we stop spending so much on social defense, on, on fences and limits, on procedures and clawbacks, on oversight, supervision and protection against low risks. I mean, low risks. If we spend less of our time and money on, on fear, we would easily afford to share enough of all that we have. We've never been so, so rich, so, so connected, so informed, so capable. We have so much knowledge so much wealth, we have freedoms, we have opportunities, we can all afford to be included, respected, to be secure. We cannot afford poverty. We cannot afford insecurity. We cannot afford inequality. We can afford to care. We can afford to care without exceptions. And the sooner the better. I mean, we need to make substantive changes in the next three years in Ontario. We really do. We need to realize a concrete shift away from burning fossil fuels now in order to achieve that distant net zero by 2050 goal. And, and solar and wind power? They've gotten so cheap. I mean, cheaper than they were at the last election. Over 80% cheaper than they were when Ontario was paying prime rates to anybody who could put up a solar panel to help feed the grid. I mean, solar power cost $2 per watt in 2010. Last year, it cost 20 cents per watt. That's huge, two bucks to 20 cents. And it keeps getting cheaper. Solar is now the cheapest electricity in history. Wind is a close second, way cheaper than fossil fuel. Even with the gas and plastics industries that government subsidizes in Canada, even with those subsidies remaining, solar and gas are cheaper. And the progress on batteries to store solar and wind energy is also amazing. In just the last 18 months alone, it's safer, it gets more effective, it's getting cheaper. So in this next term... In the next few months, the Pickering nuclear plant in Ontario is closing. A provincial plan currently in place is replacing that non-carbon-emitting source of energy to Ontario's grid by burning more natural gas. A total misnomer. Uh, natural gas is otherwise known as methane. You know, the same element in cow burps that has so many people going vegetarian? Methane. I mean, it is a naturally produced gas, but I kind of hate how misleading its name is. Anyway, burning more methane 
to fuel our electric grid right now? Well, ugh, talk about a step away from a sustainable energy grid. Something different this way comes. It does. Yes, something different this way comes. <laughs> something different this way comes. It does. Yes, something different this way comes. It does. My son, Sam, he wants to see solar panels on every roof and windmills and all the windy spots. And I would like to see, like the carbon sequestration that Canada wants to be a leader in, so far has only been being used in the oil and gas industry. Why not move it to all the other industries we know we need going into the future? Move it beyond this dying culture of fossil fuel extraction. Move it into cement and steel and... There's so many things that we're already poised to do. I want to hear news of, of us doing more of. Provincial policies and funding could easily make that happen. But then again, if they don't, there's other ways. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. And that's another thing. I'm going back to William McDonough in that podcast, Future Cities, the architect and designer. Because he also pointed out that less of what we don't want is still, by definition, something we don't want. He also said, you know, being asked to stop doesn't help you figure out what to do instead. So he recommends focusing on what you want more of rather than what you want less of. Not saying less of bad is, is not movement in the right direction, but I want the climate crisis to talk less about what we want to change and more about the change we want. We want more solar and wind power on the grid. We want more kids getting the education and care they need. We want more sick people and their care providers getting the help they need. We want more care and security and respect for everybody. We want more electrification, more efficient buildings, more heat pumps, and more accessible public transit. We want wilder, healthier wild spaces. And, and more green and native ecosystems in our neighborhoods. We want more and, and better housing that meets our needs today. We want jobs that respect our firsthand insights and give us opportunities to do things worth writing songs about. I is the buyer that builds a boat, and I is the buyer that sails, or I is the buyer that catches the fish and brings them home to Liza. That's what we want. That's what I'm thinking about as I listen to the brave, generous souls asking for our votes in the Ontario election on June 2nd. So, I emailed all 10 candidates in both of the Thunder Bay ridings, and I said, I'd like to ask you the following three questions for my podcast. Please get back to me by this past weekend, because, you know, I'm going to broadcast it on, on Tuesday. Four of the 10 of them replied. All of them, it happens to be in my riding. Judith Monteith Farrell, the incumbent and the NDP candidate in Thunder Bay North, called me up and booked a date to record her answers pretty much right away, which was great. Tracy McKinnon, Green Party candidate for Thunder Bay North, she also replied promptly, though it took a bit to sort out getting answers and getting them on tape because she is a one-woman show. She doesn't even have a printer, mind you, many of the other resources her opponents on the ballot can draw upon. So we ended up recording her answers at the Hub Bazaar Market on Victoria Street, where she had a table last Saturday. So you'll know when it's her speaking because of that background. Catherine Sutari, the new blue candidate for Thunder Bay North, also replied eventually. She said she's willing to participate but would definitely like to see the questions first which indicated to me that whoever vetted her email before telling her of my invitation must have cut out the questions I had provided in that invitation. So I copied them down again for her. I reiterated my deadline, and I never heard back. So 
you're not going to hear from her either. Rob Barrett, he's the Liberal candidate for Thunder Bay North. He was the third to have provided answers, but despite some back and forth, he couldn't find the time to record them with me, so I will read his answers for him. Anyway, here we go. Mixing up the order of answers for maximum equality. Tracy has the bizarre in the background. Remember, Judith had no audible background, and it's me reading Rob's replies for him. Okay, so I have three questions. I'm not going to change the questions. And the first one is, when it comes to climate change and the things we can do and should be doing in the next term, the next provincial term, what would be the number one that you would love to accomplish were you elected in this coming election? Um, if elected, the number one change I'd like to see is less vehicles on the road, more people out enjoying the walking trails, the pathways, the waterways, the natural resources Thunder Bay has to offer. There's something we can do together or individually while still maintaining social distancing practices. Spring is here, summer around the corner. I would like to see more people out enjoying nature with the increasing price of gas lately with no end in sight to these increases. For $3, you can take transit while saving money, fuel and air pollution, helping protect the environment at the same time. Ontario has the opportunity to lead in the building the new climate economy and the jobs of the future today. We have the right vision. Northwestern Ontario can thrive as a world leader in developing climate-friendly businesses and good green jobs. As you know, Poverty Free Thunder Bay did two deputations. I can never say this word. Deputations. <laughs> I have a lisp as well. So, as you know, yeah, Poverty Free Thunder Bay did two deputations to city council in the last couple of years advocating for fare free transit. While we weren't successful in getting fare free transit, we did work with transit to come up with alternatives, <coughs> which in the end were effective and mutually beneficial to many who take transit, with the 60 minute transfers now extended to 90 minutes from youth now 12 and under are free compared to previously was five and under with the price of an adult monthly pass did increase by two dollars it is now more affordable for a family single person or senior to use transit i think uh, one of the major platform pieces is the electrification of public transit in our cities across ontario but then you need to talk about the infrastructure that needs to be in place, making green solutions accessible to everyone, which is also something in our platform, because people can't afford to just switch out their car or switch out, you know, afford the electrical uh, outlets we need, uh, you know, so we want to make the solutions accessible to everyone. So everyone can do their part. People want to do their part, but if we make it so expensive, or people think that they're going to lose their jobs, then it's not going to happen. So I think that's the number one thing. The broader climate change debate, like so much in current politics, has become polarized and problematic. I believe that it would be more productive for us to change the narrative from overwhelming disaster scenarios like sea level rise, droughts and floods, to manageable concepts like minimizing individual impacts. This changes the common perception that an individual can't make a difference. Climate change is the sum total of individual actions. Collective action will significantly reduce carbon emissions. Okay. Um, so if you could just snap your fingers and completely change something here in Thunder Bay that would help the climate emergency here, what, what would be the thing you'd like, just like to change? If we're talking about emissions reduction, I would think that um, obviously the electrification of uh, vehicles, we drive and need to drive uh, larger vehicles, just our roads, you know, what, what's happening. And we don't have access to a lot of public transit. And so, and people live in rural, you know, we, I have a huge riding and people live all over it. And so that would be 
probably the one thing that would be sort of an immediate. Um, but you know, there are other pieces around methane, about you know, uh, you know, industry, about uh, things that are ongoing, but things that we need to still work on. Embrace biomass energy. It makes so much sense for Thunder Bay. We can reduce carbon emissions, save money, and create local employment. A true triple bottom line solution. Further, by using locally sourced biomass, we also increase local energy security. Sustainably produced wood chips or pellets are a smart option to generate heat and can also provide electricity through cogeneration technology. Biomass is an on-demand, renewable energy source. It can produce energy when the sun isn't shining and when the wind isn't blowing. Note, Libs were big supporters of biomass in the northwest at the Thunder Bay Generating Station, Atacokan, and Con College. The Conservatives shut down the Thunder Bay Generating Station. I would implement the universal basic income. Um, I was having this conversation earlier with um, the people on either side of me. That's something I think that would help Thunder Bay locally and, I guess, nationally have a, a place on the map and for a good reason rather than all the negativity that's happening around in and around the city. I think um, an basic income or doubling and or doubling B, uh, ODSP rates is what's needed here um, to get people out and about again, to get people motivated to just to have a better outlook on life, just to... You know, give them some positivity in the last two years as we're coming out of COVID, you know, still in the sixth wave. Um, just give people, you know, a, a something, yeah, something to look forward to, something, you know, towards that can look towards the future. That they can spend that money on whatever they need to, you know, whether it be move to a better apartment, a better part of city, you know. Um, could be something simple like buying a, a monthly bus pass rather than spending that money on gas. Like just changing their habits, changing their behaviors. You know, some for someone like me, it could be something simple like um, going to the grocery store rather than me having to go to the do drop in for lunch to pick up, you know, things I may need that I can't afford. Whether it be, you know, something simple like milk or, you know, um, bread or vegetables, right? Sometimes I can get chicken, you know, they have the prepackaged donations from Metro. You know, chicken's expensive. I picked up a wardrobe salad there a couple months back. $18 for a salad. Like, wow, I, I, I couldn't afford that in a grocery store. Right? There's, yeah, people need to feel that they matter. They feel to, they, they need to feel that they, you know, someone cares about them. I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to do this 10 years ago, um, well, 11 years ago when I was homeless. But I'm doing it now. But people, to give people a voice or a hope or something, um, that they can look back on or, you know, look look towards it. Hey, you know, she, you know, she tells a story that she's been homeless. It took her, you know, X amount of years, 10 years, whatever, to get where she is. But, you know, hey, if she can do it, why can't I do it, right? Just, yeah, to give people hope. And um, with everything that's going on, I mean, there's so much racism and discrimination in Thunder Bay that it just... I think the, it would also help with the crime rate and the mental health, right? And then that that's a... I don't say a burden, but it's also um, the challenge for the healthcare system. I think if people had enough um, funds for what they needed, you know, the healthcare system wouldn't be so drained. And people would have enough money to live on. They would be able to go to the grocery store. You know, people with diabetes wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be maybe as severe. They wouldn't wait until, you know, their one of their limbs needed to be removed, right? Because they could. I have a friend actually who's a double amputee. Um, he had gangrene in his legs, right? 
because they can't afford nutritious food. I know, but the um, the snow we've had. I mean, that you, I ran into him a few weeks ago in Victoria Mall, in his scooter, actually in his wheelchair. Um, new thing, you know, just that when the the snow is just starting melting, that he would finally be able to get out, because the sidewalks where he lives is not always plowed, or the pathway they're not always plowed, and he can't do it. So he was he was basically a shut in, right, for weeks. No one's going to do it for him. He can't do it himself, right? We just need, yeah, people to... Yeah, people need the, the income. Yeah, just to be able to afford, you know. He, otherwise, he could have, you know, picked up the phone, you know, and called, uh, could it be Snow Angels or 211, right? Or LSBC, hey, I need my, 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 um, my pathway shovel. I need to be able to go out to get to the grocery store, right? He couldn't even do that. Um, it was good. It was glad to. I was glad to see him, and um, yeah, just and he looked good otherwise. But yeah, he you know he had the double amputee. So these were stories that you no know, powers that be need to hear, right? The city, we don't need this fifty million dollar legacy project. We need to invest in you know the people that are here. We need to invest in you know Fort William. It used to be you know the hub of the city. Now look at it, right? We need to take care of what the investments we have before we go invest in more, right? Invest in the people and the, and the people invest in the community. So what gives you hope? <sighs> what gives me hope? Um, that I had the power to change that. I'm using my voice um, to bring these lived experiences to, you know, the, poli- the I say policymakers, but the, the stakeholders, the policymakers, the people that have the power to make change. Um, yeah, they have that power, but they're refusing to, you know, to help people like me in poverty. Um, yeah, if I had more money, I was also on the basic income pilot project. Um, <clears throat> then I was able to pay my rent, no problem, and pay my bills and, you know, have good food and be able to go be able to go to the grocery store you know if middle of the week if I wanted to rather than having to wait till the end of the month you know people get paid they get excited oh I get to right they do they get excited like when you know for me I can't speak for anybody else on low income but when I get paid like oh crap you know I have money but it's going you know I know it's gone already before I know I even get it you know, 77% what I get goes to rent. Um, another 10% goes to, you know, child support arrears I pay. So in the end, I have 13% of what I receive every month to live on. And it wasn't for in-person program, in program, programming starting back up again, I wouldn't be able to afford to go to the due job, right? To have bus tickets now and get bus tickets for going. Um, I wouldn't have those to be able to go to the due job to pick, you know, have a free meal, let alone to get the, you know, the essentials that I need. So you have hope when you're listened to and respected. Yes, that too, right? Um, to have, yeah, to have someone, um, yeah, to feel heard. And that's the biggest thing that people need to feel heard. They need to be respected. They need to feel that their voice matters. And I'm, I'm doing this again for the third time and hoping my voice will, you know, people will get tired of hearing my voice and, you know, t- change will happen. The fact that one person can make a difference especially if the focus of debate shifts to minimizing impacts from current doomsday scenarios. You cannot do this job as a politician effectively if you don't have hope, because what's the point? But 
I know I have a daughter who's a scientist and she's an environmental scientist and I know her friends and her and their friends. Like you said, we see hope in our, our, our generations that are coming up because they live their life more sustainably. They're talking about converting their homes to solar. They're talking about those innovations. And also they've made the choice to spend some of their income on electric vehicles because they said, you know, they want to do their part. The other thing that's exciting is the people we finally, finally have had people of all generations entering the conversation around the environment and in reducing emissions and doing whatever part they can. And, you know, I think that that is so important because every little bit counts, every piece of this puzzle. And we're not going to affect this change without changing our lifestyles in some ways. You know, we're going to have to move past things. And when people talk about, you know, not using, a, a, you know, single use plastics. And I say, well, we used to smoke in public. We don't do that anymore. You know, like I said, we can move. I said, uh, and we see people trying. Right. And so I think that's so encouraging. And the science, you know, how many innovative young scientists are working on solutions. And that is inspiring. They are looking at ways that we can make our everything we do cleaner and, and less effective on our water and not just our air, but, you know, and our and, and looking at the effect on species. So the, all that work is exciting and very hopeful for me. So there you go. Liberal candidate Rob Barrett, NDP incumbent Judith Monteith Farrell and Green Party candidate Tracy McKinnon. All running in Thunder Bay Superior North and all hoping that you vote on June 2nd. They had lots of good answers there. I hope our elected provincial representatives all work together to make all of those things happen and more. So I wrote them each pretty much what I already told you. Do more. You can't worry about cost when not spending the money means losing everything. And most of the change we want to see, you know, it's it's upfront capital investment that's going to actually save us a lot in the long run. Delaying and diminishing these goals is penny-wise, pound-foolish. So, thank you for listening. Thank you for voting. Thank you for thinking about the world you want to live in and voting for it with your pen and your purchases and the conversations you choose to have. You give me hope. Thank you to Michelle Landry for introducing me to the wonderful podcast, Bioneers. Thank you to all my newsletter recipients who replied to me this week with feedback and encouragement. That was so great. Please join me next Tuesday for the next edition of Something Different This Way Comes. I'm Heather McLeod. Get details on all I reference. Join my newsletter. You can even contribute to help cover my costs at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes. Something different this way comes something Something different Something different Something different this way comes something Something different Something different different.